Hear now the word of God. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that. Father, you care about how you are worshipped by us. And you also care about how we receive your word. So would you give us humility to hear from you and even to be corrected? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. Most importantly, would you minister your gospel to us this morning? Send your spirit to make it so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe my favorite thing about the Bible, you could say there are probably a few things that there are to love about the Bible, but... But maybe my favorite thing about the Bible is the way that it consistently ruins our man-made ideas about what God is like and what Jesus is like. And uh, because, you know, the, the, book, the Bible is a book that you and I would not have written. If, if they had started a committee and said, hey, we need a, uh, a book. It needs to be a good book. It needs to be true. It needs to be completely accurate. And it needs to say exactly what the people of God for the next two, three, who knows how many centuries need to have written down. And if you and I had put our heads together and we had written the Bible, we would not have produced the book that we have. Besides the fact that we're fallible, besides the fact that we don't uh, know everything that's written in Scripture, we just would not have even thought about it. And if we'd been on the committee that was approving it, we would have said, ah, this part's wild, this part's way too crazy. And I think we probably would have gotten today's, to today's passage and said, ah, we got to rewrite this guy. He, he can't be angry. <laughs> we got we to gotta do something about this. He can't come across like this. Because we would have written a book that confirms our worldview. We would have written a book that confirms the way we think about Jesus. And I love this passage today. It's one of my favorites because Jesus just overturns the stereotypes that we have about him and of what he is like. Because the picture that almost everybody has of Jesus is the Jesus that's only meek and mild. Now, Jesus said in the scripture, I am meek. So we need to have a picture of Jesus that accepts that and understands that and implements it into the picture we have of him. But we think of him usually as only meek and mild. We think of him as only peaceful, as as certainly never violent. And of course, this has some basis in reality. Paul tells us, remember the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Um, we know that it's true in history. Jesus famously uh, did not defend himself when he was persecuted. When he was led to the cross, he let himself be taken even though he could have fought back. Even though his followers were willing to fight back. Even though he could have called a legion of angels to come to his rescue. At no point did he resist. 
And so because of these true things, Jesus has sort of become a hero of, of pacifists. Now, pacifism, and I'm going to give a sloppy definition of it, but I think it's accurate. Pacifism is the belief that violence at all times and in all ways is never acceptable. And Jesus is often held up by pacifists as a perfect example of exactly how we're to deal with conflict. And he's almost portrayed in the culture at large, at least, as sort of almost effeminate, helpless, uh, supremely calm, always serene, um, as if he's just always finished yoga or something. You know, that's sort of the way the world pictures him. And if, and if you had told the world, well, Jesus is, is often troubled and, and oftentimes he's, he's animated and passionate and he laughs and he's full of, full of joy and he tells jokes, people would not believe it because it doesn't fit the picture that we have of Jesus. Now, I actually think the way that Christians have portrayed Jesus in the media, and what I mean is in movies and, and TV shows and, and acting and, and plays and such, is he's presented as this very two-dimensional figure. Just an argument against movies about Jesus and pictures of Jesus anyway. But he's presented as so two-dimensional, so absolutely uninteresting that we have trouble even picturing it. And yet, the, the, what does Jesus do here this morning? He goes and gets a whip. And he whips his enemies and he threatens them with a weapon. And he drives them out of the temple and he uses force to do it. You could almost see him with his eyes full of fire and fury. And in this moment, Jesus is giving us a bit of a peek behind the curtain because it turns out the stereotype we have of Jesus is not a full-orbed picture whatsoever. Instead, the Jesus we see here looks closer to the way we see him in the book of Revelation. In, the, in Revelation, his eyes are full of fury. In Revelation, his clothes are spattered in the blood of his enemies. And it's entirely uh, different than the world thinks of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons that I read the Bible. It's one of the reasons we should be reading the Bible because we need God to show us how we're wrong. We need God to correct the image we have of Jesus, especially because we live in a culture that's constantly feeding us the messages they want us to believe. And one of the messages is, you don't want the real Jesus. You want the Jesus that we tell you is best. And so today we see the authority of Jesus on display in a way that the world is thoroughly uncomfortable with, in the way that he deals with these people who have forgotten the holiness of God, they've forgotten uh, just how precious his worship is, and they are badly in need of correction, and it needs to be sudden. And it even needs to be a little harsh. So how does Jesus do this? How does he correct these people? Well, the passage just shows us in three stages, and we're going to look at each of those stages. We move from the joy of Christ to the corruption of worship and then finally, to the fury of Christ. So he moves from joy to fury by the end of the passage. Uh, first, here's where we see the joy of Christ, and it's in the Passover itself. He, he arrives at the Passover in verse 13. Um, the event takes place during the time of the Passover. And maybe you remember, maybe not, what the Passover is. The Passover is a yearly celebration in the Jewish calendar, remembering God's rescue of his people from Egypt. Now, before we think about 
how Jesus would have viewed the Passover. Let's remember this. The Passover is a celebration of the Exodus. And one of the things about the Exodus that actually Levi did an excellent job of pointing this out last week is that Jesus was intimately involved in the Exodus. And one of the things that Levi opened for us two weeks ago in the evening service was this passage about what Jude says about Jesus. He says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, so Jude tells us that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. It would be so easy to read that passage and just keep going. But slow down a minute and think of what Jude is saying here. Jude is attributing to the person of Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He is attributing to Christ the salvation of Israel being celebrated in the Passover. So think of what this is. Jesus is coming to the temple to celebrate his own achievement. Jesus is coming to the temple to celebrate this thing that he accomplished 1,500 years before. So just to set the stage the best we can, think about this. Think of the picture here. Jesus is entering his city. He's ready to worship. He's ready to participate in this this celebration of his own achievement that he won for Israel 1,500 years before and along with thousands of, other, uh, thousands of other Jewish worshipers, he enters the temple complex. That's the scene. And you could imagine for many Jewish, Jewish people, this would just be a routine event. Something you did every year because you're supposed to. Something that was expected of you. Something that you didn't love. And you didn't really care about it, but you knew you were supposed to do it. But you could also imagine how uh, another kind of Jewish person would would picture it. Someone who's pious, someone who believes, someone who loves the Lord, someone who is excited about the deliverance that God brought. You could imagine how the Passover would be for that person. I remember my very first Christmas as a Christian. I remember the entire Christmas season leading up to Christmas, how exciting it was for me because I had gone from being an atheist and a skeptic and someone who didn't believe God existed at all to by the next Christmas, I was not only convinced that a deity existed, but I believed that it was the God of the Bible and I had been persuaded absolutely by the evidence that, oh, wow, and it's not just any generic God, but it's the God of the Bible. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so here we are, we're coming up on this season, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, and I can't tell you how excited I was. I have never felt that way since then, Um, certainly not to that degree. There was something unimaginably special about it, and I can't help but think that Jesus coming into the temple would have had a special joy that every person around him would not exactly have understood, because he understood who he was. He understood where he came from. He understood what he came there for. And he knew what the Passover meant better than anybody else. And yet, he comes into the temple and what does he see? He sees something that he probably could never have imagined. And something that would have been absolutely deflating to his soul. You could imagine the joy, 
tempted at least, to leave Jesus as he comes into the place and finds something there. And the thing that he finds is our second point this morning. It's the corruption of worship. Um, Christ comes to the temple. And the passage tells us that instead of seeing the sweetness of worship, instead of seeing the court of the Gentiles being used as a place of prayer, he sees something else. And John describes it for us. He says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, I think for us, if we're honest, we don't see what's distressing about this because for us, all of this feels foreign. For us, everything happening in the temple is weird anyway. We don't have a temple. We have no uh, experience with that. We don't live in the day and time where sacrifices take place. And so to us, this just sounds like the way it was done. But we need to understand the situation to understand the response Jesus gives. This moment takes place in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was originally meant to be a place of prayer so that even people who weren't Jews could come and they could worship God. They could still worship God even if they didn't have Jewish heritage and even if they weren't part of Israel. So just in your mind, in your heart, imagine a place that's intended to be used for worship and instead you go in and you see shops set up and you see stores instead. I mean, imagine if uh, I, I had uh, my, uh, a, 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 a coffee shop right over here, and uh, you could just walk over there and get some. You know? Imagine if you had people in the corner or over here in this corner, and they were selling trinkets, or they're selling Precious Moments uh, dolls, and they were, had, were marked up ridiculously. And uh, during the service, instead of hearing the worship, you would hear them crying out, Precious Moments dolls, 50% off. You're trying to worship. And instead, the precious moment dolls are being sold or whatever. Um, But what makes this distressing is that this is supposed to be a place of prayer. This is supposed to be a place that is is used by the the worshipers as they come into Jerusalem. This is supposed to be a place of of prayer. Worshipers would come to, to Jerusalem. Think about why these shops exist. The worshipers would come to Jerusalem and sometimes they would come from a long ways off. And admittedly, the idea of bringing oxen or bringing sheep from a tremendous distance is hard to imagine, especially if you were wealthy. Sometimes you would need to bring a lot. Uh, basically, um, the people were vastly inconvenienced because of the way that the worship system took place. And so they said, well, let's make this more convenient. And now you can just walk right into the temple pay a little money, and boom, you have your ox. You can go right in. Uh, You can get your sheep right here. Boom. This is easy. Just pay us, and your worship experience will be as smooth as silk. The other issue that the Passover created was there was a temple tax. If you wanted to go into the temple, you had to pay, but you had to pay using a special Tyrian coin. And so the money changers were there, to make that simpler. So they would say, give us your Roman money and we will give you the Tyrian coin. We'll charge you a small fee, of course. And they would share that fee with the priests. And so what happens is the temple suddenly becomes a money-making operation. It's not just a matter of worship, but it's actually generating income. It's making the priests wealthier. It's making the money changers wealthier. And it made worship very convenient and very easy. 
At the same time, what happens? It starts to create a worship that's also a formality and not a real sacrifice. In a way, it becomes stripped down so that it isn't really worship that comes from the heart at all. It almost becomes as dry as paying taxes. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and that is what he sees. It reminds me of this episode in the life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in 1510, his order had chosen him to be the one to go to Rome. And he goes to Rome. He's, he, he is in the middle of a spiritual crisis, and he thinks, this is perfect timing. This is exactly what I need. I need to go to Rome, the city of Rome, the center of the spiritual center of the world. Let's go. And so he takes this journey, and he really hoped that in the middle of his spiritual crisis, that coming to this city would reinvigorate his love for God, that he would find some peace for his heart, peace for his soul, that coming to the city, the home of the Pope himself, would, would do the trick to deepen Luther's faith. And when he arrives in Rome, his enthusiasm is as high as can be. He falls down on his face and he says, Hail to thee, holy Rome, thrice holy for the blood of the martyrs shed here. So he's really into it. And then he goes into the city and he goes in with this high hope. And what he finds is priests who are corrupt. Priests who have taken vows of celibacy, and yet it wasn't unusual for them to openly have mistresses and secret families. You would see men wearing habit or men uh, dressed as monks kissing women as they leave their house for the day to go about their religious duties. Roland Baton talks about how disappointed he was in the priests. This is what Roland Baton says in his biography of Luther. He says, on making his general confession, he was dismayed by the incompetence of the confessor, the abysmal ignorance, frivolity, and levity of the Italian priests stupefied him. They could rattle through six or seven masses while he was saying one. And when he was only at the gospel, they had finished and would say to him, get a move on to a devout believer from the unsophisticated Northland, such disclosures were truly shocking. He was horrified to hear that if there was a hell, Rome was built upon it. So when I think of Luther's disappointing trip to Rome, I can't help but think that in a sense he was echoing Jesus' own disappointment as he entered the temple. I think what happens usually with these sort of illustrations is that as Protestants, we think, oh, man, and we just, say, we just decide to take another dig at Rome. And we look down on them, but, and we think we don't have the same problems, but the reality is the American church can be guilty of worshiping God in a frivolous way. It's very tempting. And you have sort of this twin temptation. On the one hand, you have this totally temptation to be totally disinterested in the things of God. And there are people who just, they look at church as a dry, repetitive practice, something they do uh, completely against their will. Someone made them come or they're afraid God's going to strike them down if they don't come. And if, if church for us is a dry, joyless ritual, we have fallen into the same thing Jesus condemns here. That's the one hand. Church can be so dry, so joyless, something that we take no delight in. And if it's, a, if it's a biblical church, if the scriptures are presented, if the music is biblical, 
The problem is not with the church. The problem is with us and with our own souls. We need to turn the mirror on our own hearts. That's the one hand where it's dry and joyless. And on the other hand, we can sometimes find ourselves wishing that we were more like the other churches, that we were more entertaining. Um, we sometimes can wish that, our, that maybe our emotions were more manipulated just a little bit. Uh, I, I love rock and roll. That's my diet of music, generally speaking. Um, I also love emotions. I love both of those things. But when we look at church as something more akin to a rock concert that is performed for us, as if it was a place where primarily someone is supposed to come up either with an instrument or with their voice and manipulate us and make us feel something, as though that is the primary purpose of what they're doing, then that, as, though, as though God needed help to make things happen, then we also fall into a similar error. The error of wishing that, that church was different or wishing that worship was different. I remember a, a friend of ours uh, telling us that their church was amazing. We said, why is your church so amazing? They said, we have 30 Xboxes in the youth room. And I, I thought... No, that's not good. It's a sign of a church that thinks that it needs to help God bring people in when you have people coming for the Xboxes but not for the gospel. And we can make a similar error when we look at worship as something that is barely important or if we approach worship irreverently. Um, We visited a church in Phoenix. All my wild church stories come from Phoenix. Uh, But we visited a church in Phoenix several times. They had a Starbucks in the hallway And while worship was even going on, while the service was happening, people were singing, you could pay $6 and get a Frappuccino. And then you could walk in sort of slurping on this thing through the whole service. It wasn't even unusual or weird to have that happen. You could sort of stand out in the hallway for 30 minutes. And then right when the sermon started, you could slip in and hear it and then sort of get out. Not a soul would ever notice you. Nobody knew that you were even there. Um, Usually it was a sermon about five steps to a stronger family. Now, don't get me wrong. I love coffee. I drink a lot of it. I love sugar. I eat too much of it. I love strong families. And I love Xbox, actually. But there is something of the holiness of God, that the awe of God, the reverence of God that is lost when we become so relaxed that we forget the character of the God whose presence we're going into each time that we worship. We sometimes forget the Israelites were so terrified of God that they begged him to stop talking. There's something lost when the greatest thing a person can say about the youth program of a church is they're already doing what kids are already doing at home. More video games. More screen time. 70% of American kids say that they spend two hours or more with screens in their faces. That does not even count phones. Is it our job as a church really to simply do more of what kids are already getting seven days a week? I would suggest that we as the church need to give all churchgoers, including kids and teens, not more entertainment because we are awash in it. We are awash in entertainment. We are not starving for entertainment in the United States. But do you know what we are starving for? More gospel We need that more than anything else in our lives, and we don't get it anywhere else. And Jesus knows that the Jews in the temple at this point have lost that sense of the holiness of God. They've lost that sense 
of the importance of prayer. They, they, and they care so little of, about inviting the nations into worship that they don't even use the court of the Gentiles the way it was intended. You know, this, the court of the Gentiles exists for one specific reason, outreach. The, the temple, the, the, the Gentiles, temple, the, the court of the Gentiles was meant to be their outreach area in the temple. And they said, no, we don't, we don't need that. There are, we're, we're fine as a people. There are, there are plenty of us already. Those Gentiles are dirty. They make us unclean. Just, oh, no, thank you. No. And so they use it for something else instead. They're not going to use it for prayer. Let the, let the Jewish people worship. The Gentiles don't care. And so Jesus comes into this place and the disappointments that Jesus find begin to pile up. And so third, as a consequence, we see the fury of Christ. In verses 15 and 16, John tells us the response of Jesus to all that he sees around himself as he enters. Listen to this in verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You have a couple of features in Jesus' response. On the one hand, he doesn't explain himself. Not, not at first. All they know is Jesus has, has made a whip and he starts whipping them and he starts attacking them. He's chasing these business owners as far away from this place of worship as he possibly can. He's, he's turning over the tables. The, the busy shuffle of the courtyard is broken as coins scatter across the ground. They can't believe this is happening. They, they're maybe even in shock. This has never happened before. He doesn't explain himself until he comes to those who are selling the pigeons and he says, get out of here, what are you doing? Think of the fury in his voice. Think of the angriest you've ever been. The angriest so that if someone heard a recording of it, you would be humiliated. You wish no one ever heard you yell like that. That's Jesus. He uses a volume that is not for polite company. Thousands of people in the temple. And they would have heard him. This place is not a store. It's my father's house. The Jesus we see here is the Jesus of judgment, isn't he? Meek and mild Jesus. Tame pacifist, effeminate Jesus, nowhere to be seen. Instead, we see his fury. We see what righteous anger looks like. What does real, true, pure, sinless anger look like? It looks like this. He loves God too much. In a way, this is, this is revelation Jesus. This is the Jesus that the Old Testament told us to expect. In Malachi 3, Malachi makes a prophecy that says that not only is the prophet going to come, and he's talking about John the Baptist, but that when Christ came into the world, he would enter the temple and cleanse it. I want to read these four verses to you from Malachi 3, 1 to 4. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist he's talking about. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So understand very well, this is not a temper tantrum. This is not an explosion of rage that is at all sinful. This wasn't sinful in the least bit. This was righteous judgment and a love for God's house. If you want to know what righteous judgment looks like, this is what it looks like. Absolutely. After these things happen, at the very end of the passage, John, the author, offers this reflection on what for some is a challenging moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. He says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They may not have understood it in the moment, but we know at least later after knowing Jesus better, they were able to make sense of this episode in the life of Jesus. What did they do? They remembered one of David's Psalms from Psalm 69:9, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, David didn't have a temple to worship in yet. For him, the house was just this temporary tent that the ark sort of moved around in. And in our own day, there's no temple either. We have that in common with David. There is no temple today either. And even our own church building is not the equivalent. Our church building is not the equivalent of the temple anymore. It is not the analog to where Jesus was at this time. This is, this is just a building where we meet. This is a place where, uh, that is dedicated to worship. It is dedicated to the Lord, but it's not the temple. We don't have temples anymore. And then we're going to see this next week. So in a sense, I'm giving you a preview of the next passage But the real temple of God isn't a physical building at all. It's Christ himself. Christ is very clear as he speaks here and as he speaks in the passage next week that the temple of God now is him. It's his own body. It's his own person. He is the place where we meet God now. So how do we obey the spirit of what happens here? How do we take this and apply it in a day and age where we don't have a physical building anymore? Well, the answer is straightforward. The people of Israel should have looked to Jesus and they should have loved him the way they loved that building. They should have loved the temple of God wherever it was found. And in that moment, the temple was a physical building where they could meet with God. But that temple wouldn't be around for long. It's destroyed in 70 AD, totally flattened, never gets rebuilt. What are they supposed to do then? They were supposed to worship In the true and lasting temple, Jesus Christ himself. That's why Jesus is constantly calling them to himself. Come to me. Worship in me. Worship in spirit and truth. Jesus had a zeal for the temple. Do you have a zeal for Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you you worship him? I'm not asking you if you beat people, if they don't worship, or if you frighten people around you, if you see them check their phones during worship or anything like that. But my question is, do you have a zeal for Christ? Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have an enthusiasm for Christ? Do you worship him the way that God calls you to? Does does it get you excited to come? Does it get you excited to worship with, with God's people when Jesus gets set before you each week? 
the point of what I'm saying here is not you better love God more, you better have more zeal. Because here's the reality. God calls us to have a zeal for him. God calls us to worship him. Uh, God calls us to love his son. But I guarantee you, we've all failed at it. If you say, I'm always excited to worship, well, I hope that's true. But I have a feeling all of us have failed to love God as we should. In fact, I know we've failed to love God as we should. And I know this, that I have come into worship and I have not always had zeal to worship. Sometimes I've got things going on in my life, things that preoccupy me, things that distract me. And if you've been distracted in worship before, if you know what it is to be distracted, if you know what it is to be led off and not worship God as fully and truly and beautifully as you should, you have something in common with the people of Israel. And there's good news here. Because even though we haven't given God our full attention, even though we haven't rejoiced in him the way that we should, I want you to know the beauty of the gospel this morning is this. Your Savior did have a zeal for worship. Your Savior did worship God perfectly. He did love God perfectly. He had a zeal for God that we ought to emulate. He perfectly did all the worship that you and I imperfectly do. He lived out exactly what we ought to have. He had a zeal for the temple. And in Christ Jesus, he takes our awful worship. He takes our flawed worship. He takes our sinful worship And he imputes his perfect, good, joyful, love-filled worship. He imputes it to us. So that when God looks at us, he sees what he's supposed to see. He sees perfect worship. The sort of perfect worship that came from his son. Because Jesus had a zeal for the temple. He had a zeal for his father. He had a zeal to see others worship truly. He gave the worship that we failed to give. He loved God in a way that we fail to love. He kept the law from the heart and never, ever stopped living the life that we need and that we'll only find in him. And and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't bother trying to honor him in our worship. But it does mean that we can worship in freedom and we can worship without despair of our failures. This is the good news of our God, Jesus Christ, our new temple the place of our worship, and our only hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your Son who loved you perfectly, who loved your worship perfectly, who lived with an undivided heart before you. Set our gaze on your Son, the perfect lover of you, the perfect worshiper of you. Remind us that in Christ Jesus, we are free of condemnation. And yet we are also free now to really love and worship you without fear. For we know that perfect love casts out all fear. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.